good to get to see your faces this morning. Uh, it was a little bit different, a little bit weird to preach to an empty auditorium last week, just kind of trying to stare at the camera. So it's nice to actually get to see people again this morning. Uh, we are continuing our series, as Brandon said, called Fight for Joy, that I think this is our seventh week. Uh, started in January and we'll be finishing up next week. And this morning we are going to look uh, at envy. At envy. There was a commercial that was popular probably three years ago, I think 2017, that you might remember. Uh, it pictured a family at a cabin kind of enjoying each other's company. Uh, and we see a mid-30s to 40-year-old uh, kind of sizing up his new brother-in-law. And we take in the scene uh, through his mind, through what he's thinking in that moment. And here, here's what it said. There he is, your new brother-in-law. You like him. He's one of those guys who always smells good. His five o'clock shadow is always at five o'clock. You like him. Your mom says he's done really well for himself. He has stocks and bonds. Your dad wants to go fishing with him. Your dad doesn't even like fishing. You like your new brother-in-law, but you'd like him better if you made more money than he does. Don't get mad at your brother-in-law. Get E-Trade. E-Trade knows something about envy and something about ourselves that we may not even know that envy can be a very powerful motivator. And, and the Bible would recognize this as well. It's why Solomon in Ecclesiastes would say, there, there are people who can spend their whole lives driven by what they don't have that other people have around them. He says in Ecclesiastes 4.4, these words, then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. See, the Bible would recognize envy can be a very powerful motivator that would drive us our entire lives to chase after what we don't have. But envy is not just a powerful motivator. It's also a potent illness or sickness, or ultimately we'd say sin. And we don't have to look again very far to have examples of this. You, you could look at almost, uh, not almost every, but many Disney animated movies and see that lots of their villains are driven by envy. The most famous example is probably Scar in Lion King. That, that Scar can't stand the fact that his brother is king and that one day his nephew will be king and he's forever going to be in the background. And so envy drives him to try to destroy his family so that he might rise to the top. Or we could think of a popular movie in 2006 called The Prestige that shows two magicians in England who are driven by this desire to be better than the other one, to have the greatest magic trick of the day. And we watch the movie as we see that envy slowly destroys their friendships, their families, and ultimately themselves. And again, the Bible shows the same thing. We think of uh, Cain envying Abel in the beginning because Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's wasn't and leads him to murder his brother. We could think of uh, Rachel and Leah envying each other for Jacob's love and ultimately for more children than the other one. 
We could think of Joseph's brothers who envy him so much because his father shows him favor and they ultimately sell him into slavery. Or we could look all the way up to when Jesus comes and in Mark 15.10, see Mark telling us the Jewish leaders delivered Jesus up to be crucified out of envy. See, envy is a potent illness, a potent sickness that would spread destruction in its path. That the Bible shows that if this is left unchecked, undealt with, it leads to all sorts of other damage, all sorts of other sins. There, as, I, as I was reading this week, studying this week, I saw there was lots of definitions for envy. People give lots of different definitions for what envy is. One would say envy is feeling the feeling of unhappiness at the blessing and fortune of others. Another said envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. But I think the, the best and most succinct definition I came across is envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. Envy is feeling bitters, feeling bitter when we look out and we see others having it better. And, and so there, there are lots of places that I think we could root our discussion on envy this morning. Uh, but I'm going to take us to 1 Samuel 18, and we'll look at the story of Saul and David and some of their interactions in there. So if you want to open up to 1 Samuel 18, you can. Uh, I choose this passage because I think it shows us the sickness of envy, or why envy is so deadly in some ways, uh, the symptoms of envy, how we might spot envy in our own lives, and then also the slaughter of envy, how we go on the offensive and kill envy in our lives and fight back for our joy and for God's glory. Before we look at that passage, uh, I want to pray for us this morning because I think for us, I know this for myself, envy, like most sins, is a whole lot easier to spot in movie and TV characters and Bible characters and people around us than it is to spot lurking in our own hearts. And so I, I want to pray that, that God would show us through his spirit where envy still lurks in us and show us the grace that we have to be able to fight back against envy and other sin in our lives. So let me pray for us and then we'll look at 1 Samuel 18. Father, your word is like a mirror that can show us who we really are, that can expose things about us uh, that maybe we would rather like to keep hidden. And in some ways, I'm praying that uh, throughout this whole series, that's what's happening. Uh, but, but praying, especially this morning, that's what would happen for us, that you would show us where envy still lurks in our lives, perhaps bringing destruction that we're not even aware of. But don't leave us there. I pray that you'd also give us hope in the gospel, hope in your grace to be able to see how do we fight back in the power of the Spirit to kill envy so that we might worship you, so we might have joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking care of that, whoever that was. I thought about that during announcements. Like, it sounds like there's something back there, but I don't know if my ears are just going bad or what. But I guess there was something left on there. First uh, Samuel 18, we're going to pick up in verse 5. And we'll skip over a couple verses, but read through most of the chapter. I should give some context on this too, first of all. King Saul is the first king of Israel. 
Uh, and he has rebelled against God and God has told him, you are not going to be king forever. Once you die, there's going to be someone new from outside your family who becomes king. And we see that David is the one who's secretly anointed as king. And this story comes on the heels of David's first greatest victory uh, against the giant, Goliath. And up to this point, we see that uh, Saul is basically okay with David. He doesn't have any major problems with him, but that's all about to change. We'll pick up in verse five. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this? He said. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands? Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. Saul was then afraid of David, for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. Finally, Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over a thousand men. And David faithfully led his troops into battle. David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. When Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful at leading his troops into battle. We're going to jump down to verse 20. In the meantime, Saul's daughter, Michael, had fallen in love with David. And Saul was delighted when he heard about it. Here's another chance to see him killed by the Philistines, Saul said to himself. But to David, he said, today you have a second chance to become my son-in-law. Then Saul told his men to say to David, the king really likes you, and so do we. Why don't you accept the king's offer and become his son-in-law? When Saul's men said these things to David, he replied, how can a poor man from a humble family afford the bride price for the daughter of a king? When Saul's men reported this back to the king, he told them, tell David that all I want for the bride price is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Vengeance on my enemies is all I really want. But what Saul had in mind was that David would be killed in the fight. David was delighted to accept the offer before the time expired. He and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. Then David fulfilled the king's requirement by presenting all their foreskins to him. So Saul gave his daughter Michael to David to be wife. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. Every time the commanders of the Philistines attacked, David was more successful against them than all the rest of Saul's officers. So David's name became very famous. That's a long passage to read, I know. But I think, again, it shows us especially the, the sickness of envy. In other words, why it's so deadly and the symptoms of envy, how we can spot it in our own lives. And so I want to first of all look at the sickness of envy. 
Answering that question, why is envy so deadly? Why should we be so concerned about it? Why should we want to fight back against it? And I think we can see its sickness in its inward, outward, and upward effects. That, that maybe even like all sin, that it has inward effects, outward effects in our relationships with others, and an upward effect ultimately in our relationship with God. And so first of all, we might think of the inward effect of envy, that envy robs us of joy. We, we've been saying that in this whole series, that all sin ultimately would rob us of joy, that, that it would try to steal the joy that God has designed for us in knowing him and in living a holy life of obedience to him. But I think envy especially does this. In fact, several people would look at envy and they say, of all the deadly sins on this list, only envy is no fun at all. Why would they say that? Because the, the other sins that we looked at often hold out some form of pleasure as the bait. That, that there's something in them that, that appears enjoyable as the bait, and, and then they make us miserable. But envy would just make us miserable from the start. If you look at Saul from this point on in the book of Samuel, He's a miserable man. He's fearful. He's afraid. He's angry. The only thing that would make him happy is to get rid of David. It, it's really hard to have any sense of joy and happiness when we're always focused on what someone else has that we don't have. And you, you probably can spot this or know this in your own life. You've seen examples of it, I'm sure. The, the kid who has a room full of toys can remain unhappy because he doesn't have that one yellow ball that the other kid has in the room. The, the person who's enjoying, friend, or enjoying dinner with friends and family, something that should be fun and enjoyable, can, can quickly become unhappy as they pull out their phone and see everything that other people are doing that they're not doing. It's really easy for us to be unhappy in our jobs, our friendships, our families, in the gifts that God's given us, in all that we have, when we're constantly looking at what we don't have that other people have around us. Envy would have us always looking over the fence and saying, I don't have that and I won't be happy in some way until I do have that. I think this is part of why Solomon in Proverbs talks about envy in this way. It says, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. What an incredible way. Envy makes our bones rot. We, would, we should ask, where in our lives are we unhappy because we're fixed on looking at something we don't have that someone else has? Envy is slowly but surely robbing us of joy. We could think of uh, the outward effect next which I think is maybe the most sinister part of envy that we would see in our world. Envy revels in misery. Envy revels in misery. Again, if you, we look at this passage, it seems like the only thing that would ever make Saul happy is if he could get rid of David. And we might look at that and we might be quick to say, oh, my, my envy, my, my looking at what others have would never lead me to have a type of murderous rage that, that Saul has in this passage. But I think we've got to pause and think, 
Where might envy cause me to be happy when other people suffer misery? See, envy would take Paul's command in Romans 12, 15, if you're familiar with it, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep and flip it upside down and say, weep with those who rejoice and rejoice with those who weep. Envy has this sinister side that I think we want to keep tucked far away from sight because it feels so bad to even say it. It's what uh, the, the Germans have a great word for it that I came across this, word, or this week called schadenfreude. I'm probably butchering that. Schadenfreude, or in other words, malicious joy, a happiness when someone else goes through something bad. If you're a sports fan, you've probably experienced schadenfreude and you may not have even realized it. Because if you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan, what brings you almost as much happiness as the Eagles winning? Not, not as much, but almost as much. The stinking Dallas Cowboys losing, that's right, and getting crushed. If you're any sports fan and your team doesn't make it to the playoffs, what, what brings you, what can still bring you happiness even as you watch the playoffs? Seeing your rival team get crushed and sent home. What's happening? There's a, a happiness at someone else's loss. And, it, and in sports, it's, it's essentially harmless. We, we, we kind of all do this. But, but what about when we see it or what about when it affects our relationships? Do you ever get a little bit happy when that picture-perfect family ends up to not be so perfect after all? Do you, do you get a little bit happy when someone doesn't get into their dream college because you didn't get into yours or you think they just need to be knocked down a couple notches? Do, do you ever get just a little bit of course, again, we would never say this. We would, we would try to mourn with us, but, but there's something in us. Do you ever get a, a little happy when, when something that we've lost or something we've never experienced, we see someone else going through the same thing? See, th this is the type of evil that envy would spread. This is the type of poison that envy would spread in our relationships, and I think it's important for us to see it. And, and then the third uh, reason or sickness of envy uh, upward, that envy is rooted in misplaced worship. Envy is rooted in the fact that something has misplaced God in our lives. There's something that we don't have that we think, if I don't get that, I can't be happy. I can't be happy with just God. I need this other thing. And for Saul, we could point out that's most likely human praise. That if we would look in his life earlier, human praise was one of the things that he said caused him to rebel against God disobey God. And now as David rises up and gets all this praise from other people, this idol again rears its ugly head and starts to create chaos. What we envy in other people is often our own idols staring right back at us. And I think that's important to realize because envy might be a warning light that goes off in our lives, a big red flashing light that would help us to see where have I misplaced God? Am I worshiping something other than him? 
And that just as when I'm driving my car and my gas light comes on, I ignore it to my own peril rather than stopping and filling it with gas. When we start to feel envy rising up, I think we ignore it to our own peril rather than asking what has become so important to me that I can't stand to see others having it while I don't have it. It might be something that shows us where we've misplaced God in our lives. Envy is a sickness, a sin that pollutes inwardly, outwardly, and upwardly. But I also think it's something that's hard to spot and diagnose in ourselves. Again, it's a whole lot easier for us to see it in characters in movies, characters in the Bible, other people around us. And, and so here's where in the next part I want to say, all right, how might this story show us some symptoms of envy that might help us spot it in our own lives so we could fight back against it? And again, I think there's three symptoms that we could pull out from looking at the story of Saul. Uh, comparison, uh, cutting down, and complaint. First of all, comparison. We can see in this, the first part of the passage, Saul's envy is stirred by comparison with David. He, he's walking along and he hears some women singing in the streets and he's listening to their song and then he stops. It's like, wait a second. They gave David credit for 10,000s, killing 10,000s. And me, only a 1,000? They're, they're saying David is a better warrior than me. The next thing they'll say is that he'd make a better king than me. And Saul's anger is stirred up as he compares himself to David. It, it's not necessarily, I think, that comparison in and of itself is bad, but when comparison to other people stirs up sadness and anger in us, I think it's a bad thing, and I think it's a sign of envy. I, I know I'm not like saying anything new in this next part, but we have to remember over and over and over again that one of the great dangers of living in a age of social media is how much social media can be a hunting ground for envy. Because we can open up our phones or our computers at any time and see someone who is happier than us and someone who is more successful than us. Because we usually only put out the most happy, successful version of ourselves. And so we might look and think, I, I'm not as happy as them because they have this. I'm not as successful as them. If we find ourselves on our phones, on social media, and find that we are more miserable and angry after spending time looking at those things, it might be a good sign that, that it's time to take a little bit of a break and step back and ask, what is this doing in my heart? But obviously, en envy is not just something that pops up on social media. <laughs> Comparison happened long before that and continues to happen on a regular basis today. And so I think there, there might be two helpful things that help us see how we do this type of comparison. The, the first is we compare close to home. And what I mean by that is we're most likely to compare to the people closest to us. Our peers, our teammates, our coworkers, our friends, our family, and our fellow church members. 
This is part of what makes envy, again, so deadly, is it attacks our closest relationships. Think of, I don't compare myself with Bill Gates and think, I can't believe I don't have $110 billion or whatever he has right now. But I might look at a friend or a coworker who makes $10,000 more than me and think, why, why, what makes them better than me? Why do they have that? If you're a basketball player, you don't compare yourself with Steph Curry and think he's so much better than me. You compare yourself with a person who averages two more points than you and gets three more minutes a game than you. And that's the case for all of us, that we compare often to the people who are closest to us. And then the second thing is that we compare to assess our value. We look at people who maybe have it better than us or we think have better skills than us and we start to think, I'm not as important and as valuable because I don't, I don't have what, what they have. Rebecca DeYoung, I quoted her last week on uh, gluttony, and she's got another great quote related to this on envy. She says, the envious want to be superior for their self-esteem depends on outranking others in the relevant field of comparison. Their own identity hangs on excelling others, but only those others who threaten their identity. That is, those close enough to be compared as rivals. Who and what are you prone to compare yourself with and find yourself assessing how valuable you are? It sounds foolish to say this out loud, but I am prone to compare myself with other youth ministries and other youth pastors and think if they're larger or they're a more dynamic speaker or a more dynamic leader, well, then I must not be that important. I'm not that valuable. I'm not that good. Even this week, as I was writing this sermon, studying for it, I pulled open my phone and opened up Instagram and saw another youth ministry celebrating their youth, pas- youth pastor. And you know what I did in that moment? He's not as great as they think he is. And, and my, my youth ministry should celebrate me more. How foolish is that? Sin is foolish when we call it out. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. But this is what envy would lead us to do in all our lives. A- after we've compared, I think the next step, maybe I already pointed it out with that example, is that we, we cut down. Envy leads to resentment. What's Saul's next step after he compares himself with David and sees that the people like him more, they think he's a better warrior, they might even think he's a better king? He tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. We should read that and think, whoa, that escalated fast. And then when that doesn't work, what what does he do next? I'll use my daughter who likes him to marry him and when he asks for my blessing in return, I'll say, well, all I want is for you to go kill a hundred Philistines and give me their foreskins. What? Like the Bible is wild. You can't make that up. And what, what's he doing? If I can't have what David has, then I'm going to cut him down and I'm going to get rid of him. That, that's the only thing that I want. And again, I think we, we look at a story like this and we think, what? Well, would never lead to that type of murderous rage that we see in Saul, but we should stop and think, where do we see this same tendency to cut others down? Maybe not even realizing that envy is behind it, 
but to just kind of cut others down to size. And again, I'll give two examples. There's probably more than this, but two that might get us thinking. Criticizing other people, especially unfair criticism. Where do you find yourself, where do we find ourselves overly critical of another person? Or, or where do we find ourselves trying to undermine someone else's achievements or skills with a barb or, or even maybe even a backhanded compliment? That, that maybe we would, we would think things like this. We might not even say them out loud. Maybe we just think them in our mind. He or she doesn't even work hard. It's just good luck that they got promoted or that they have such a successful business. The, the only reason that he or she has such a nice car is because mommy and daddy bought it. I was guilty of doing that in high school a lot. <laughs> she has such a nice house, but, but that's just because she doesn't have a life outside of her home. We might not say these things, but when they show up in our thoughts, it's a sign that envy lies close at hand. Or the second one is gossip, that we, that we love to, we, we savor some fact or some story that paints a person in a negative light because secretly we're envious of them. And, and we can't wait to pass that on. Unfair criticism, gossiping, other ways of cutting people down to size, are, I think, the, the rotten fruit that would tell us envy is lying beneath the surface. I remember several years ago uh, walking into the offices here at Keystone and walking down the one hallway a couple times and thinking, something stinks. Something smells awful in here. There is a horrible odor. It, it smells like there's something dead in our office. And, and sure enough, Dave Ulrich started to look around and as he looked up into the ceiling, found there was a dead mouse there. <laughs> that the, the foul odor of a dead mouse signaled, there's something rotten around here. And the odor of criticism, gossiping, other ways of cutting people down, should signal to us envies lying somewhere close at hand in our lives. The, the third one would ultimately be uh, complaining, that envy breeds discontentment. While, while the story doesn't come out and show Saul doing this, I think it's what lies behind his envy. That we see he recognizes God is with David, blessing David, and no longer with him, blessing him. And so, so the complaint that might be there is, God, you are not you are not being fair. You are not being good. You are blessing that person and not blessing me. That the heart of envy in some ways would be for us to look at God and think you're not doing a good job because you've given them that and you haven't given it to me. There was uh, a movie in the 80s that came out. I'm pretty sure I had to watch it in middle school. I think that's the only reason I remember it. That does a great job of painting this side of envy. It's a movie called Amadeus, uh, and it tells the story of a composer, Antonio Salieri, uh, and his rivalry with Mozart. Salieri has prayed to God to make him a great composer so that he might play on the biggest stages of the day uh, and glorify God through his music. And then this young, brash Mozart comes on the scene, 
And Salieri realizes he has far better talent than I ever will. And Salieri eventually tries to plot cutting him down in his downfall. But at the heart of it all is that Salieri can't stand that God would bless this young, brash, reckless person, Mozart, with gifts that exceed mine. And so his ultimate gripe is not with Mozart, but with God. And I think the same thing is for us when we envy other people. Our ultimate gripe is not with other people, but with God. That envy at its core would have us point our, point our finger at God, shake our finger and say, you are not doing a good job because you haven't given me blank and you have given it to that person. You are not taking care of me. You are not doing what you should. You are not doing a good job, God. And we might not express it out loud, but these feelings might rise up of complaint. That, that if we want to see where does envy lurk in my life, might think, where do I compare myself with others? Where do I cut other people down? And where do I complain that God has blessed other people and not me in this area? I, I hope, I hope as we, we go through this, you're starting to see why Solomon would say, envy makes the bones rot. Envy makes the bones rot. But again, we, we've got to ask, as we always have in this series, okay, how do we fight back then? We don't just want to see how bad the sin is or how it shows up in our lives. We want to know, how do we fight back by God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit? And so that would lead to the slaughter of envy. First of all, how do we fight back? I, I hope it goes without saying, and I, I think we've said it in some sermons in the series, but the first thing is simply repent. Call it out when we see it in our lives. Envy, like all sins, is nocturnal. It thrives in the darkness. And it's only when we turn on the lights, call it out for what it is, confess it, ask for God's, God's forgiveness, that then we're able to fight back against it by his grace and through the power of his spirit. And then once we see it and we repent of it, I think we can go on the offensive and fight back against envy by seeing and savoring God's goodness in our lives. We could even look back at our passage. I intentionally skipped over verses one through four. I don't know if you recognize that. Because in verses one through four, we see someone else's response to David's success. Jonathan, Saul's son, who is next in line for the king at this point. And, and let, let's see how he responds. You probably already know this, but let's read it. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. How does Jonathan respond to David's success? by rejoicing and befriending him, by taking off his own coat, his own belt, his own sword, his own bow, and giving it to David. An act that some people say is Jonathan saying, you are the next king. At the very least, it's an act of saying, you're one of us now. And I want to know, why would Jonathan respond like this? Because I wouldn't, I don't think. Why would Jonathan respond in love and celebration at David's popularity and ascent? when with every blessing David gets, every victory he gets, it becomes more and more clear, Jonathan will not be the next king. 
something that would be his by right. Why would he celebrate? Why would he love David? I think it's because Jonathan sees in David an evidence of God's goodness and grace to Israel. That Jonathan looks at David and sees, you are someone sent by God to deliver Israel, to save Israel, to be good and gracious to Israel. We can even see this if we would look forward to chapter 19, where Jonathan's defending David before his father, telling Saul, have you forgotten about the time he risked his life to kill the Philistine giant and how the Lord brought a great victory to all Israel as a result? Saul looks at David and only sees someone who's a threat. Jonathan looks at David and sees a deliverer and a king after God's own heart who is good and gracious for Israel. See, this is the the big idea, and I just want to then give three ways that we might put this into practice. The battle with envy is won by savoring the goodness of God. The battle with envy is won by savoring the goodness of God. And this is something we could see confirmed in 1 Peter uh, 2, 1 through 3, where Peter's talking about envy. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What's Peter saying? Put away envy and the other sins that come with it, long for God's word, if you have already tasted that God is good. And we might flip that back around and say, if we have tasted that God is good, then envy makes no sense. If we have tasted that God is good to us, then envy makes no sense in our lives. And so let me give just three ways we might savor God's goodness to fight back against envy. The first is we might savor God's goodness in his grace. The gospel of free grace constantly should day after day after day remind me, remind you, I deserve only judgment and punishment and anything else good that I get is because of God's grace in my life. That that would start to undo envy. That, That if I might realize everything good that comes to me flows to me because of Jesus life, death, resurrection, and ascension, envy starts to lose its power in our lives. How, how are we ever able, how could I ever able stand at the foot of the cross, look at it, and see both what I deserve, punishment, and what I get, grace, and think, God, you're not good. The gospel, grace, undoes envy in our lives. The second is that we might savor God's goodness in your identity, my identity. This first Peter passage goes on in verse nine to lay out some of who we are in Christ, a verse that Brandon used in the first sermon in the series that says, you in Christ are a chosen people, royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. We compare ourselves to other people to assess how valuable we are because we forget who we are in Christ. I I really do think it's that simple that when I compare myself to some other youth ministry or some other person and to evaluate how valuable I am, it's because I've forgotten who I am in Christ. Every day I wake up trying to find my value in comparison, my value will rise and fall with how well I'm doing versus how 
poorly other people are doing. But each new day that I wake up and remember my value is secure because I'm united to Christ through faith. What's true of him is what's true of me. Envy might lose any roots in our lives, lose any type of fertilizer that it can spring from. Thirdly, to savor God's goodness in his gifts. That gratitude is an incredible weapon against envy. Because envy, again, would have us focus on all that we do not have that God has not given us or that someone else has. And gratitude would focus us back on, here's all that I do have that is a gift from God. Envy is, finds it hard to grow and thrive in a heart that is thankful. And with this, we might go even farther on the offensive and thank God, praise him for the gifts and the blessings that he's given to other people, including that very person that I envy. Recognizing it is because of God's grace that that person is blessed, that they have that talent, they have that gift. And so I can praise God for that. And I might even pray that he would continue to bless them. And out of that, love for people starts to develop rather than envy for other people. Uh, This morning, today in general, is February 14th, uh, a significant day for some, Valentine's Day, right? And, And many people today will get flowers of some sort. But there's a big difference between getting flowers on February 14th and March 14th. What do I mean by that? On February 14th, many people might expect flowers. It's Valentine's Day after all. I even think, I, I deserve it. And if I look around and see others who've gotten them that I don't, I might, might become bitter. What, what's going on here? But if flowers would show up on March 14th, there might be this shock and even amazement of, why now? Why this? Unless your husband got in a fight with you or it's your birthday, then maybe you're not so shocked. But otherwise, why now? Why this? Do, do we have a February 14th mindset to God's goodness and his gifts? I expect them. Maybe even I deserve them. Or, or maybe I, I know I don't deserve them, but he really should give them to me. Or do we have a March 14th mindset to God's gifts? Say, why this? Why now? Why me? See, envy would have us look out at everyone else, look at their gifts, their talents, and say, why not me? And that we would start to become bitter because they have it better. And God's undeserved grace in our lives would have us look at all that he's given us and say, why why this? Why me? And say, I have it so much better than I actually deserve. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your goodness in all of our lives, your goodness that was ultimately displayed by sending your son to live among us, to die for us, to be raised for us, and to ascend and sit on a throne right now for us. And God, every day you are pouring out spiritual blessings on us through Christ, things that we can so often miss because we get so focused on what we don't have in this world. And even end up missing the good things you've given us here and now. And then envy starts to stir in our hearts. God, I pray that you would 
once again, today, tomorrow, every day this week, remind us of your goodness through your grace in Jesus Christ. And that because of that, we might see envy in our lives as foolish, repent of it, and run from it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.